Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Fed Chair Jerome Powell's hawkish remarks at the Jackson Hole Economic Symposium have raised a slew of questions around the health of the economy and where it's heading. One area that analysts are keeping a close eye on in the midst of the news is the credit market. With higher interest rates coming, what does this mean for credit spreads? Is it possible for there to be a credit resurgence over the course of the year? Joining us today to discuss her thesis for credit and where she sees opportunity in the markets in the months ahead is Denise Chisholm, Director of Quantitative Market Strategy. On the topic of inflation, Denise notes unemployment and wages are not necessarily drivers of inflation and that government spending has been the bigger driver of inflation. Additionally, Denise shares her thoughts on various sectors, including consumer discretionary, financials, and energy. Today's podcast was recorded on August 31st, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Denise, great to see you again. How are you? I'm well, Pamela. How are you? I'm very, very well. I was looking at some numbers recently. This was actually going back to the first quarter of this year. Canadian numbers, I won't bore you with sort of the whole Canadian versus U.S. outlook, but it was this idea that across the boards, we saw health of the consumer improving. And we saw this in terms of demand growing, supply growing, consumer behavior better, performance better, all of this pointing to sort of a better credit scenario. How different are things now than they were, I don't know, six months ago? In some ways, not that different. I mean, the health of the consumer in both Canada and the United States has been the difference this cycle, I'd say, and the consumer's ability to withstand shocks that we've seen, both from energy prices, although there's still a very low level of percentage of of income and interest rate hikes because debt service is a percentage of disposable income, is near all-time lows, right? Savings was near all-time highs. The banking system is fully ballasted with credit, with reserves, I should say. So it's a very different situation, in some ways, in some ways the opposite situation of the great financial crisis, right? Where the U.S. consumer and the banking system is in very solid territory. And it's just the most recent recession for all of our memories. So we often go to that. That is our go-to to an extent. And credit markets, depending on which day you've been looking at, have, have been pricing in sort of a recession, maybe a mild recession. You've seen that another way of sort of how markets have priced certain things in. Tell, tell us about what credit markets have been pricing in, in your mind. Yeah, we've seen essentially, you know, as the way you can think about how the bond market is thinking about the coming wave of defaults is by looking at credit spreads, right? So high yield bond yields, 
versus the 10-year treasury and how they move over time. And what you saw was coming out of the pandemic, credit spreads were literally the lowest. I think that they've ever been. They were, you know, if they weren't below 2%, they were close to 2% or below. So pricing in like a low risk of a recession, essentially, or just a mild one. Correct. I mean, you could say it's a low risk of recession, but really it's a low risk of defaults. Right. So to some extent, defaults and recession mean the same thing. But in fixed income parlance, let's say that they're thinking of defaults. Now, you've seen that 2% climb to, say, 6%, which is not really at levels that we saw even in the pandemic or that we saw certainly in the great financial crisis. So low levels of default, which may or may not be coincident with recession. But coming off of that peak, which is typical, as you see inflation accelerate, you do usually see credit spreads widen as markets become worried that higher inflation risk will create a default cycle. But what you've seen now over just the last two months as the equity market has rallied, now granted, we've off the lows, we've given back some of the gains, but what you've seen is credit spreads contract rapidly. In fact, the two-month contraction in credit spreads that we saw from that peak to the most recent low happens less than 1% of the time. But it's actually a very rare phenomenon, and this isn't up to date. We've seen a little bit of resurgence since then. But what's interesting is that when you get these outlier behaviors, meaning that credit improved that rapidly, you can actually see that there's a monotonic correlation, meaning just a stair-step pattern of the more that improves, credit improves, the more likely it is to keep improving, which you'll see in bottom decile, which you know we're in the one or first percentile, I should say, you only have over the course of the next year, 17% odds that credit spreads are going to rewiden, meaning that the base case is, and again, for every decile move, you have higher chances of credit continuing to improve. That's an important backdrop. And really, I think what you see historically is this is in line with the causal factor of the deceleration in inflation. And this could likely be sustained because of that causal factor. So this should be coincident, as you said, with inflation expectations coming down. And what do we need to see in data to sort of believe that, I guess? Maybe this is one piece. Right. It's certainly inflation expectations coming down, which you've seen, but it's more than that. It's really just inflation from a year on year perspective starting to decelerate. And it might interest you because, you know, I look at the chart all the time and it's, you know, you can say it's not coming down very rapidly, but core inflation, core PCE deflator peaked six months ago. It was that long ago that it actually peaked. So it's starting to come down in a much more rapid clip. So if you only knew one thing about inflation, you would say, okay, when I look back through history, you would say, well, the cure for higher prices is higher prices. Because usually when you see those peaks in inflation, it comes down and comes down rapidly. So if I look just through history, even in the 70s and 80s, when you could argue that, well, inflation was sort of stickier, when it comes down, it usually deteriorates, so the year-on-year growth rate usually deteriorates over the course of the next year by at least 350 basis points, if not more like an average of 400 to 500 basis points. That means that just in historical average, we don't even have to talk about supply chains getting better or the dollar strength that we've seen being a dampening or the rapid rise in, in rates being a dampening effect. But just a straight average of what you've seen historically means that that 9% headline inflation is most likely your base case around five a year from now. That is a very, very sharp deceleration. Very sharp. And so so then 
we go in the philosophy discussion, wages and energy, which don't all fit neatly, of course, into the core discussion. However, they are realities and they're how people yeah. feel. Yeah. So now the funny thing is none of this fits neatly into a discussion because I think that the discussion points don't fit the data. So a lot of the discussion points are, well, wage growth is still strong. Therefore, ergo, inflation needs to be sticky. And the why isn't problem, that true? Because that really feels true. I mean, it just does in your, your day to day life. <laughs> but it's not true in the data. That's the only thing I can say. Right. So the unemployment rate, which people will hold up and say, well, the unemployment rate needs to go up to get unit labor costs or wages to come down. So therefore, inflation can decelerate. First of all, and I should put this chart up in my charts of the week on LinkedIn, that wasn't even true in the 70s. What you saw was inflation decelerated rapidly, very quickly, with wages stayed sticky the entire time. The pass-through effect was not from wages. It was from commodities. It was from oil. Oil was the bigger driver to overall CPI, and that passed through than wages was. The second point I'd make is that even if we say, okay, the unemployment rate is low, that must be the reason why wages are high. No, the unemployment rate four years ago was relatively at the same levels, and by the way, was going down when unit labor costs were also decelerating. So look, I think people are in some ways misguided about the core reasons for inflation, right? We saw coming out of the great financial crisis, a lot of monetary accommodation, right? You didn't get inflation, right? So it's not monetary accommodation. Also last cycle, what did we see? Very low unemployment rate. That was not the driver of inflation then either. What was the driver this time? Government spending. What's rolling off this time? Mm. Government spending, mm. right? So we can- I mean, are we talking about student debts? Are we talking about- the, you know, the, the provisions essentially to help with a greener economy. Um, what are we talking about government spending? Or well, just all the money they threw at roll it. off of the straight up stimulus Here's of writing okay. checks to people. I mean, there is, you know, some things are a little bit strange in the data where I, I'd sort of object to the words Fed put and I would sort of object to the fact that accommodation is something that's good for the stock market. So I think that there's problems in the data. One problem that's not in the data was government spending in terms of stimulus checks is monotonically related to your forward odds of inflation. That was true coming into the pandemic. The reverse is likely to be true coming out of the pandemic. And this rapid deceleration, which we may see over the course of the next six months, is likely the reason or the causal relationship for the improvement in the credit backdrop that we are likely to see. So I'll ask you about equities in a second. But if inflation becomes less of a factor, and in fact, if everything is deflationary going forward right. after a certain time, what's the outlook for bonds? So it's funny because I think that over time, it's sort of like a stair-step pattern is that you can grow into the higher interest rates. And I think right now we're in that stage where, look, yields are in line with inflation expectations, which creates the historical odds of bonds usually go you total return being up by double digits. So I don't think that the outlook for bonds necessarily has to be a bad thing, even if inflation is a little bit stickier, right? So you can certainly see the situation where inflation comes down, but it's still around three to four over the next only four months, where the Fed still hikes, but at a much, much slower pace, where that might be, not be so bad for the bond market, where the 10-year treasuries are sort of in this steady state yield, and maybe in six to nine months, 
it revisits higher when, again, the U.S. consumer can handle more of that. And if the U.S. consumer can handle more of that, the U.S. consumer can handle more just straight spending. Yes, can just handle more. I mean, in some ways, if you think about, you know, the odds in terms of the the critical drivers to spending, one of the dampening effects have obviously been the shock of inflation. So when you look at real income, real income growth has been negative. Now they've filled the gap and they do historically with credit and with savings and all other things. So it doesn't necessarily mean that consumer spending had to retract and contract and it didn't contract. But what you are likely to see going forward is the reversal of exactly that. To the extent that inflation decelerates, again, just looking at history, when it decelerates, it decelerates sharply. What does that lead to? A very rapid rise or acceleration in real income. So even if income growth or wages did slow, and I do think that they will slow, inflation is just likely to slow faster. What you can see is over the course of the next 12 months where the consumer is even in better shape than they were than the last 12 months. Okay, so let's talk about the sectors, factors lining up. You, you've you explained, often they don't line up, actually, it doesn't always, right. isn't always the case that they do. But for the consumer discretionary discussion, they, they in fact do? Yes. So in, it's funny because the story isn't usually smooth and I'm usually kind of pulling apart data and saying that this doesn't really work that way. But I think if you sort of step back to what we talked about with the credit environment and say, OK, one of our biggest questions as an equity market investor, we've seen this massive rally off the lows. Right. I think it was 20 percent off the lows. Is that just a typical bear market rally? And we're due for that 50 percent decline that we saw in 1973, 74 that we saw in the great financial crisis? Or is this something maybe that the lows are in. And if we look forward through all the volatility that we're likely to see, we've certainly had some retracement. Is this likely to continue? And I think that that credit environment gives you a piece of that saying, okay, let's look to the credit markets. Has this typically been sticky after credit improved this much? Yes. Is there that coincident driver of inflation? Yes. Does all that make sense historically? The answer is yes. So when you look and you say, okay, well, what works in that environment the best from a factor perspective, where I think equity market investors, certainly in the U.S., are busy debating about whether or not I should buy value or growth, it's actually volatility and beta that tends to be the best factor to be exposed to. Look, this is the definition of risk, right? So if you look at volatility, what what I talked about, and I think this is certainly on my LinkedIn feed, Um, volatility is still cheap. It's been persistently cheap. So you can either think of it that equity market investors aren't giving risky stocks credit, or you can think about it as the earnings estimates of those risky stocks has hung in much, much more than equity market investors expected. And that translates almost directly, and it doesn't, to your point earlier, it doesn't always make a smooth story of high beta sectors or very volatile sectors. On average, you know, one of the best ways to to talk about sectors is to divide them into economically sensitive sectors and the defensive oriented sectors. And you can see that when credit improves, it continues to be likely to improve. And what you'll see is every economically sensitive sector on average outperforms and every defensive sector on average outperforms. So risk from a factor perspective ports very neatly to a sector perspective, especially, and I think that the, the, you know, the, the one sector that we've talked about the most being consumer discretionary is really the outsized beneficiary. So does that kind of remove, I guess, within the factor discussion, does that kind of remove 
or, or just put to the side the discussion between value and growth a little bit? Yes, it puts it to, to the side, I would say. Look, I mean, uh, most of the ways you measure it, and I think that I should do these charts on my LinkedIn feed too, most of the ways you measure it, value has had a historic run. And just even from that perspective, you could say, you know, do you need to press the bet here and be all in value? Usually you'll see some sort of growth resurgence along with it. I think that there's a big portion of consumer discretionary that does end up in the growth bucket. Now a portion ends up in the value bucket as well. So it sort of muddies the waters. And when I look at my sort of portfolio that, you know, I look at internally, I'm sort of a neutral value or growth, but I'm certainly overweight beta with the factor exposure that I have. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. Okay, so we're using the credit market for clues, leading you to some of the discussions that you just had there. Lots of questions. So Denise, can you please summarize your top three and bottom three sector calls? Yes, top three is consumer discretionary, consumer discretionary, consumer discretionary, but no. But consumer discretionary, really, I mean, it's very interesting how I look at it. It's definitely an outsized position, and it reminds me of the same way I thought of energy coming out of the pandemic. It was very volatile. It wasn't clear at all what the right answer was, and in some ways retraced a lot of the gains that we saw even coming out of the pandemic. I view consumer discretionary the same way. wouldn't be surprising to me to the extent that it underperformed and gave back a lot of the gains that we've seen uh, from the low. But I think that that more provides an opportunity. So consumer discretionary and then financials, which I think is strong valuation support with an improving credit backdrop as the catalyst. And then third, I have to say energy. And because it's, it's doing what history suggested that it would do in spite of the fact that it doesn't neatly line up with, I think, what investors believe the causal entity is behind energy stocks, which is crude oil. Crude oil has gone down, right, from 120 yeah. to, like, I don't know where we are. But what you've seen is actually the stocks outperformed. 88 Why? earlier, but I don't Is it 88? Okay, I was going to say 90, but I wasn't sure. I, I can't remember. Yes. But, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because this is shows you how uniquely positioned energy stocks are because they're still at the bottom quartile, bottom decile of valuation. So you can see during that time frame, the big disconnect between crude that is usually a corollary and valuation. So you have real valuation support in energy and financials, and you have real what I would call sort of macroeconomic support for consumer discretionary. On the bottom three, I'd put defense. Like and defense almost any way you would like to think about it, I except think- for actual defense stocks, right? Right, not defense stocks. Not defense right. stocks. Yeah. Right. I would say utilities, real estate. And consumer staples look in the crosshairs as well now. Consumer staples, yeah, yeah, that's okay, fascinating to get to get your thoughts on that. One, I mean, I guess it's it's this idea of bringing back the conversation of the soft landing, and it doesn't really matter what that means. I guess that could mean a mild recession or or whatever that's going to mean. Again, if we can come back to sort of the U.S. versus the rest, some will argue that more has been more negativity has been priced into perhaps European debt markets. And I mean, you can see why, but I'm just curious whether there's, again, something to see there, or in fact, it's priced in a worse recession because it's going to be a worse recession. And in fact, I, in the US. I think that that's it. 
Right. So I, I look, I think the situation in the rest of the world via the dollar strength that we've seen is much different. Right. Our inflation levels can peak because of the strong dollar. In some ways, it's coincident, not because of, but it's yeah. certainly one of the many factors. And in many ways, that strong dollar is exporting inflation across the globe. Uh, at least to Europe. So it's a, it's a bigger issue in Europe and elsewhere in the globe. So when I look at that, say, okay, that they have sustainably more issues, right? For all the reasons that they have over the last 15 years and all the reasons that we're just talking about right now that they will have over the next one to two years. So when you look at that and when you look at the relative valuation, I actually don't see it at bottom decile levels or at bottom quartile levels that have been at least decent places to take a stab. So again, I, you know, different people define it in different ways. I look median stock in the U.S. versus median stock in Europe or median stock in, you know, whether it be Europe specifically or IFA or Japan. And right. I don't see that that relative valuation being low enough to offer strong enough odds. Yes, they're cheaper. They're always, they have always been cheaper because they grow lower. Part of that is a mixed shift in terms of profits and, and et cetera, et cetera, and lower return cycle to cycle. But I think that that disconnect hasn't, to, to my knowledge, been priced in. So it starts to look more like a value trap to me. Okay, you've already gone through this, but just kind of take us through it one more time, because it's, it is somewhat contradictory to headlines and everything else that we're hearing. So concerns about high debt, interest rates, so what is making the consumer strong right now? If we could just go back to kind of spell that out. So when we talk about debt, remember, there's three areas of debt you should always think about. One is that the U.S. consumer or the consumer. Two is financial institutions. And three is the government. Only two of those three are predictive, right? The right. consumer and financial institutions. Government debt, look, we can discuss whether or not that that's going to be a problem sometime in the future and why and when, but not predictive right now. The other two that are predictive is the U.S. consumer and the banking system, and they are very unlevered relative to history. So the debt positions of the U.S. consumer, especially when you look at debt services or percentage of disposable income, the U.S. consumer has never been in better shape, nor have been, has the banking system been as reserved as it is currently, and low levels of credit loss. So from that perspective, that that is in some ways the optimism, how they've been able to balance themselves against what is essentially the shock of inflation or the deterioration in real income growth has been exactly that. It's been access to the credit card market, or the, I should say their credit cards and the credit markets overall, because the U.S. consumer is a good credit. And oh, by the way, they had savings that they had never had in any other cycle. And net worth as a percentage of disposable income has never been higher either. So the U.S. consumer has done what it traditionally does, which is stuff the whole of the shock of inflation from access to credit and access to savings in other areas to withstand and fight another day. So what we've seen, look, we call it a technical recession. If you'd like, that's certainly possible. We just haven't seen a contraction in U.S. consumption, which, by the way, we didn't in 1960, 1970 or 1980. Or maybe it was 1980. One of those two. Um, you didn't see contractions in, in cons real consumption growth either. So we might not this time either for those reasons. But that is likely to improve to the extent that inflation decelerates. There's been a cushion. It's been used. But again, if deflation is ahead, then then sort of Correct. the worst is past. Fascinating. So so maybe you've answered that this question in that. But um, the question of margins. So the question of company earnings. We didn't see 
real trouble in in second quarter earnings at all. It was uh, sort of a surprise. You look ahead the third quarter. Any thoughts on sort of the margin story and ultimately company health? So margin should go down. To, to be clear about that, that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing for the stock market, partly because of our starting point on an equal weighted basis. So a lot of what we've seen in terms of the margin expansion in the U.S. has really just been a mixed shift to tech. So a lot of times people say, oh, margins are so great. They have to come down. It's like, no, nah, it's really just all a mixed shift. On an equal weighted basis, you finally saw margins expand across pretty much every industry taken out to all time highs. So they should come down from here. And as surprise to the upside is sales growth. So what you've seen is just higher nominal growth, which is sort of correlated to inflation and off not deteriorated enough margin. So more drops than any other cycle with, you know, sales growth that continues to be underestimated. I think that earnings are going to stay much stronger this cycle than many investors expect, which means valuation is more on your side than not. Fascinating. What sort of historically, what sort of wobble to the markets do the U.S. med terms represent one way or the other? You know, it's funny. So I somebody just asked me to dust off that data and I will dust it off and maybe it'll be different than I think. So midterms aren't particularly predictive and they tend to have a really, really wide range around the outcomes. And what I see in the data was I could give you a whole bunch of data that says, yes, it's bullish. And yes, like after midterms is bullish. But really, the correlations changed a lot in the financial crisis, meaning that the economy was more important than politics or the presidential cycle. So as much as we sort of gravitate towards to back to that presidential cycle, I think that what we're seeing and what we'll likely continue to see is that the things that will be predictive are the Fed, our CPI deceleration, all of those things, rather than a presidential midterm election cycle. I'm sorry, this is uh, amazing. So when when everyone sort of takes a look ultimately at the default rate, I mean, so the one of the discussions is if you see, for instance, interest rates uh, go to say 4%, which seems to be in the realm of discussions at the moment, I don't know one way or the other, then then default rates should be in the neighborhood of 5%. Is there is there anything that would take that default rate higher? I mean, I think you're saying no, but I'm just sort of curious if, if that story lines up with what you generally see or what seems reasonable. I think when people talk about the terminal rate, they forget that that terminal rate isn't an input without time. Right. So whether or not the Fed and I assume you mean when you talk about four percent, you mean the Fed going from two and a half to four. Well, in three months or a year and a half. Right. That massively matters to what delinquencies will be for the U.S. consumer or what non-performing loans or the default rate, all of that. Right. So two and a half can go to four over 18 months to two years without a doubt, without, you know, batting an eye or even being a problem for the U.S. consumer as incomes continue to grow, right? So the way you should think about interest rates is the the interest rate, you know, debt service essentially in relationship to income and how much it costs the U.S. consumer. So that's why time matters so much. That shock from two and a half to four in four months will not be absorbed by income, but it can be over 18 months or two years. Same way you should think about crude oil. Right. It matters in terms of the relationship to income. So I think that there are a lot of narratives out there who say, well, the terminal rate is going to be higher than it is right now. And it very well may be, but it might not be higher in December than right now. 
It's the velocity discussion, which of course is, yeah, it's, it's, it's the rate of change, right? So all the Fed has to do is hike less than it did last year to increase or to decrease your probability of recession, right? Think about it that way. So what increases your probability of recession is how many hikes they do within a given year. But next year is not going to be another 350. Maybe it'll be a hundred, right? But it's that decrement that matters, right? That it's that hurdle that increases your probabilities or decreases your probabilities because the consumer will have withstood 350 basis points of the Fed hiking. Now, next year, it's only 100. That's different. Okay, we're going to leave it on that note. Thank you so much, Denise Chisholm, for creating some real wisdom, I think, uh, for all of us to at least take part in. (laughs) I appreciate your time. Thank you. Always great to be here. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.